You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the podcast. PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the podcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, this is Lauren Young, one of the board members of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, and welcome to this episode of the Cutcast. I'd like to introduce Dr. Leonard Edlow. He is a pharmacist, a pastor, the chair of the VPHA Racial Diversity Task Force Committee, and former president of APHA. We also have Scott Newman, who is the board president of PUT. Dr. Edlow and Scott are colleagues at VPHA. Scott is lucky enough to sit on Dr. Edlow's Racial Diversity Task Force. And when Scott shared Dr. Edlow's extraordinary letter with us at PUT, the board immediately wanted to reach out to Dr. Edlow and invite him to be on our podcast. So I'd like to welcome both Dr. Edlow and Scott to today's episode. Uh, Dr. Edlow, why don't you give us a little bit about how you started in pharmacy and how you were able to get to where you are now. Well, I'm a pharmacy mud, I guess you can say. My father was a pharmacist. 1934, Howard University, and he purchased his pharmacy in 1945. I joined him in 1970. Uh, I decided when I was in the third grade, I wanted to become a pharmacist. And uh, the, the two years I spent with him, they were really fulfilling. Unfortunately, he suffered a massive heart attack in 72. And so at 25 years old, I had to take over the pharmacy. And uh, I was real fortunate we were able to move the location that he was in into a new medical office building. And uh, we grew to one to the four. And uh, in 20... Twelve, I decided, you know, enough was enough. Uh, after dealing with the Medicaid Part D fiasco, uh, not only did my father suffer a heart attack, my brother, my sister, and my mother stroke. I figured when I was 66 years old, it, it was time for me to, to move on, which I did. I still practice occasionally. Uh, I worked for a guy in the PBMs, put him out of business last year, and right now I'm helping another pharmacist. Uh, going into the prisons and dealing with uh, drug uses and whatnot. I've been very involved in pharmacy association work, uh, the American Pharmacists Association, the National Pharmaceutical Association, which my father was one of the incorporators of. I love pharmacy. I love helping pharmacy students. And, uh, you know, it's just a part of my life. Not only am I doing this task force thing for the state, I'm also on the task force for the uh, American Pharmacists Association. And it's amazing because in 1980, I was on their task force for women in pharmacy. And so I just hope we can get things as straight with women as we did, as as we're gonna do racially. I love that your passion has only continued. That's great. 
So um, in the uh, in the letter that you wrote to uh, solicit for participation in the diversity task force, um, I, I think that a lot of us would like to hear some of the, the, the story of some of the issues that you had to deal with coming up in pharmacy and um, things that are still present today that you that you notice as an African-American male trying to just be a healthcare professional and some of those barriers. Are, are you, can you share some of the story that you wrote and then how it affects you today as well? Yeah, well, it started actually when I got ready to go to college, uh, the state of Virginia. And now this is September of 1964. They paid me to go to Howard University rather than go to the MCB School of Pharmacy. And then when I got to Howard, I was a national officer in student APHA, but because you had to belong to the state association to belong to APHA, BPHA didn't allow black pharmacists to be a part. And so that's why he got together in the year I was born with another group of uh, black pharmacists and they formed the National Pharmaceutical Association. It's, it's, been, it's been hard. I had a student and I never will forget, she was a teacher and she decided she wanted to become a pharmacist and she came to me and uh, I mentored her. And so when she got to the clerkships, everything I thought would be fine. And she got to this one guy and he couldn't accept the fact of a black woman being a pharmacist and he failed her. Fortunately, you know, I was able to intervene at the school and we got another clerkship when I went to talk to the pharmacist that she was assigned that he was trying to figure out what the problem was and so she could graduate. But it's not just in the profession, but it's outside. Mm -hmm. I had a, a, a colleague tell me one time he was proud that I had become a pharmacist and joined my father because we were considered colored pharmacists and that people only came to us when they had prescriptions that they wouldn't, nobody else feel or they didn't have the money to pay for it. And see, that, that's how that racism works both ways because uh, I was real active with American Heart Association, National Kidney Foundation, and I was actually a screener, just like the MDs were, I never get on several occasions. People wanted to know where my practice was, and I told them I was a pharmacist. They said, well, that's even better. I'll come to your pharmacy. And then when they'd ask where my pharmacy was, and they found out it was in the East End of Richmond, they wouldn't come. And so, Scott, it's, it's, it's been hard. I mean, uh, I imagine you just little things. I mean, I was on the board of APHA, and I, I realized that it was some, it, it could have been some friction because I hadn't served as a local president. I hadn't served in the state association. And here I am on the board of trustees of APHA. But then, you know, I'm, I'm at the convention trying to show my support. And the then chair of the board of pharmacy runs me down and he says, you know, how are you doing all these things you're doing? Like I'm doing, you know, something wrong. And, and it just bothered me. And, and in fact, you know, I had a little, you know, a little altercation with the board. Oh, after that, you know, things worked out. But just the fact is, you, you looked at why is this happening? And 
it's just like one evening I was, I, I went to the gym at the James Center after working and I had the delivery guy drop me off and I'm standing out front and this lady asked me where a pharmacy is. So I told her to go to the CVS at Boulevard and Broad because it was after seven o'clock. And she says, uh, well, no, I don't want that kind of pharmacy. I want uh, a pharmacy where the pharmacist owns the pharmacy. I said, well, well I, that, I'm that kind of person. She said, no, I, I don't want your kind of pharmacy like I was a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, oh, gosh. You know, it, it's, it's, you know it, it's, it's so many, so many. Go ahead. Sure, sure. And you said, you mentioned also, too, in your letter that um, people only came to you when they didn't have money or they were had prescriptions that other people wouldn't fill. Is that part of how the times were then, you know, where you, if you were poor or indigent, rather you were uh, black or white or Asian, is that how that kind of worked, that they would come to you because you were willing to help anybody? No, well, the, the thing was, though, when, when I started, it was very difficult because we were looked at as being inferior by our own people. And the, the, the word, you know, the word was, you know, well, if you ain't got no money, just go and it'll be taken care of. And a lot of that, I think, was my, my father because being orphaned at 12 and then going away uh, to having to move to D.C., but people stepped into his life and did things for him that allowed mm -hmm. him to become a pharmacist. You know, he was very compassionate, showed a lot of empathy. But, you know, that carried on years after he had died. There were some people who would just come into the pharmacy and the first thing they say, can you charge this for me? And I've never seen them in life. You know, there's no relationship. But, you know, on, on the other side, uh, I, I had governors coming to the pharmacy to get their prescriptions filled. Uh, it, yeah. it, it was the weirdest thing, you know, because we were basically the closest pharmacy to the mansion and, you know, being involved in politics, some of them got to know me. And, you know, one even after he left, well, no, two of them after they, they were no longer governor, they would still come to the pharmacy, you know. So it, it, it was gotcha. real strange because we had, you know, we, we went from one extreme to the other, but there was still some oh, yeah. hate in there. Absolutely. The BPHA Racial Diversity Task Force Committee that you're chairing uh, appears to be one of the first, if not the first, to address uh, these issues associated with, with race, diversity, and inclusiveness. Yeah, well, the, the funny thing about it, uh, I had been asked earlier by Michael Holm to serve on the National Task Force and uh, only to bring the history and because of my involvement uh, no, well, Lucinda Maine, I'm the only one really around from the task force on women in pharmacy. And so uh, I went on and said yes. And when I said yes, uh, I'm also a pastor. And I said to God, I said, God, now please help me to say no on the next thing because I'm doing enough. <laughs> and so uh, Kelly was the one that asked me. And Kelly had served. Oh, uh, okay president of APHA one year of my two years when I served as president of APHA Foundation. And sure. again, you know, uh, you've got all these mixed feelings, these mixed emotions, but because of the history I brought, you know, I went on and said, yes, even though after writing that letter and 
I, I purposely didn't bring it down. I purposely didn't read it, uh, you know, because it, 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 it was depressing. It was depressing when you look at what you have to do and how you have things you have to go through. My father, the first thing he told me the day I got my license and I came, actually filled my first prescription legally, because, you know, you work for these chains in school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and he said, <laughs> he said, remember, you're going to have to do things better and you've got to charge at the same or a lower price. That that was th that was hard, but you know I did it. And sometimes, you know, how want to say, when I would show up, I guess I was one of the first black members they had of BPHJ. It was not the norm, and sometimes I think things happen, and they didn't even realize what was going on. You know, like uh, I never will forget the first time I ran for office. Uh, normally, it was just one person. And so <laughs> I figured that's how it was. And then, you know, it turned up with somebody else and they had another connection. And I just walked away. And, and it's funny, you know, I finally became president of, of RPHA uh, in 20, I think it's 2016, after I retired for four years. But, uh, when you're not the norm, and see what most people don't realize is racism, uh, to most white people, it's sort of invisible because it's the norm. The norm uh, is informed by religion, you know, and I'm really into that having an advanced degree in theology and teaching Christian ethics. Uh, it's in the schools, you know, from elementary up to, you know, the PhD level. Uh, it's in culture, and so, I, I know we'll forget one time I'm walking down the streets of Helsinki, Finland at the FIP meeting uh, with my wife and we come out of the reception and the guys on the street because we've been portrayed all over the world as hey brother man, you know, they hey brother man and all trying to be, be hip and I'm over there representing the American Pharmacists Association at, at a meeting. Uh, <laughs> when, 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 when I was in Budapest, uh, I would catch a cab over to the conference center and walk back. And on Monday, there might have been three kids on the street. But by Thursday, there had to be at least 50 waiting for me to walk by. <laughs> and wow. So it's, it's almost like you're a rock star there, huh? Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I admit I'm a big guy, so I don't know whether he thought I was some you know, <laughs> basketball player or NFL football player. But like, like I said, it's just, you know, so many times it's, it's, it's your overlook and you don't do things for recognition, but having served as, well, serving on the board of APHA, leading the Urban League, I mean, leading a model cities program, doing all the things for community service. And that's what the quote, unquote, bowl of IGEA is for, you know, it was 2007 before I got that. And, you know, I'm saying, well, well what's going on? I even had a case in the foundation. I, I was on the board of foundation. I'm not anymore. But see, you know, I know what racism looks like and I know what it sounds like. And we were about to purchase an air conditioner. 
And the statements made about air conditioners made by American companies in Mexico, I didn't appreciate it. And, you know, I, I stepped down from the board because I just, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't deal with that, you know. Uh, but it's the norm and it's enforced, you know, and, and it's been enforced for so long, you know, it starts back in 1400. It's, a, it's kind of an indoctrination almost an ingrained part of the culture that we live in, for sure. Yeah, well, the culture, I wanna, you know, and so yeah, we bring that, absolutely. Yeah, so we bring that to the profession. We bring that to the association unaware, and it's a blind spot. It's just like, for me, uh, trauma in my congregation and even when I think back now, if I'd known about it when I was practicing pharmacy, the trauma that many of my patients went through, I would have been able to treat them as a pharmacist better if I would have understood trauma. Sure. So we started our conversation off with why did you, you know, volunteer for this committee? And people had their various reasons. Uh, my mine was why wouldn't you? The second one is, is uh, there were several people on the call that said that they wanted to understand it better. They wanted to, you know, replace some of their blinders with some reality. And I thought that that was a pretty monumental testament, but just an admission that we don't really walk in your shoes. So therefore, how can we possibly understand except to hear it from someone and try to use empathy. What is your take on that? Yeah, well, I appreciate anybody to say that because like I said, biologically, there is no such thing as race. You know, science and the Bible says, all of us came from this woman named Eve from North Africa. And as I, you know, went back and studied, it, it all goes back to when the Europeans started colonizing, you know, the rest of the world and they divided us into these group Caucasian, Negroid, and uh, a Mongoloid, and, you know, and came up with this thing, you know, that I had never heard of called Orientalism, uh, where it was their idea that they could make better use of the resources in the world, and they knew better to do with the resources than the people that live in the world. And this is the scary part. See, that's an ideology and then they wrapped it in theology. And so this has been taught, like I said, in the schools, in the churches for years, and it's in our families. It's amazing, you know, uh, little things that, that happen. But what we also have to realize, see, you know, this, this thing about, you know, just like BPHA, they didn't start having black members until 1968, and most did not join. I, I'm glad that people are saying, look, what do we have to do? How do we change this thing? Because pharmacy, you know, it, it is at a real delicate state. The profession's been taken over and we need everybody with all our uniquenesses, you know, all these different cultural, uh, this cultural diversity, everybody brings something different, you know. I, I bring mm -hmm. something different, and, but I want, the profession, you know, and I want the association to appreciate that even though I'm different, I might upset you, I still got the best interest of pharmacy, you know, I just feel we can be better. Absolutely. So what is your general 
overview of inclusion and diversity in the medical profession, especially pharmacy? Well, there have never been enough black health care providers in this country. And, you know, a lot of that has the fact to do that, especially in the South, you know, the schools were, were, were segregated. So you had, you got Howard, you had FAMU, you had Xavier, you had Texas Southern, and that was basically it. They produced the majority of, of the black pharmacists. And now, you know, when, when I came back, even though I was paid to go to Howard rather than MCB, the first thing I did was start recruiting. And so I, I, I recruited. And it, it's amazing, you know, the students that, you know, I brought in because, you know, you got to see something in order to want to do it. When, when I came into pharmacy, it, it was really a family thing. I mean, most of the people, they had family members. But you, you get to the point, though, because you don't understand, because you don't know, understand, especially diet. And, you know, when I had my pharmacy, uh, I realized what people were doing. And I would do the MTMs at their homes. And I said, let's go in the kitchen and sit down so I could look in the pantry on the slide. But when you don't understand these little things, the fears, uh, my wife, you know, her grandfather got sick and they carried him to... It was just, it was retreat for the sick then, and all the black patients stayed in the basement. And he went in and he died. And I mean, it was the hardest time, even after she married me, to get her to realize that she had to trust medical science and pharmacy. It's like she said, she never met a black medical or pharmacy professional. And, you know, it, it, it was just out. And so, you get to the communities. So it's nobody there. We, you know, we exist in these communities where there's nobody there to serve us. I go in a lot of these, I, I go in a lot of pharmacies and I mean, I, <laughs> I'm a national figure, but I don't expect everybody to know me, but I go in and say, hi, I'm Larry Ed Law, I'm a pharmacist, how you do it? And some pharmacists look at me like I'm crazy, you know, so, <laughs> you know, what? I do the same thing as the president of part when I'm in a different area and I get a lot of odd looks too. So hopefully that's, uh, yeah. hopefully there's more to that. It's just like, who's this crazy person who wants to talk to me that doesn't want to buy a drug? But, but, but you can imagine though how that feels to a person. Oh, absolutely. Has been, you know, put at the bottom of the totem pole all of their lives. I mean, afraid. And, and I, because I used to have to get on my patient about that. I said, do you have a question? Well, doc, you're so busy. I don't want to take your time. I said, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to take mm -hmm. with you. And, and what happens because, you know, the diversity isn't what it should be. You've got black pharmacists that are the same way. I mean, they're not going, yes. to, they're not going to take that extra step in a community that has suffered so much. And I mean, all you got to do is look at the uh, number from COVID-19 and how it's affected our community, you know, and it's all, mm -hmm. the we've got all these pre-existing conditions that we aren't getting help with and we don't know how to navigate the system. And, uh, and that the, where you mentioned the word trust, you know, that's such an important concept for getting quality healthcare. And, and I think that that touches on a huge point. If, you know, if the inclusion, it hasn't been there, there's a, a whole, more than a generation of 
mistrust in the medical profession, exactly how you had mentioned with your wife and her grandfather. Yeah, and, and, so, and, and so it's the same thing when we talk about inclusion in the profession. If you haven't seen anybody, you know, there will be people who step out, you know, like Pat Risotto and uh, all of it, but the majority will just stand back and say, you know, I'm not going to bother. I know how it was. And then they've been told that by the older pharmacists mm -hmm. that that connection was never made with them. And so it's just like, you know, dysfunction in a family is passed from generation to generation. That same dysfunction is being passed down in the profession. And, you know, we're going to have to have, take a bold step to sort of address it and trying to correct it. And, and because, see, it's, it's, it's much bigger than white and black now. It's Asian, you know, and I mean, you, you look right now at all of the diverse cultures that come here. The young lady, you know, I met her when she was at MCB, and then I ran into her at a National Pharmaceutical Association meeting. And only after talking to her for a little while did I realize she was from Cambodia and actually a refugee from that country, you know. And so we've got people coming here from everywhere and they, they got to feel that they welcome and we got to bring them in, even though they may learn in a different educational system, they still had to pass, pass the board to practice. And so it's, it's so important. So uh, where do you see the task force going and what outcomes are we aiming for? Well, we've got some rather broad overarching things. And that's why the first thing I did was decide to divide the task force into two groups because we know there are structural things in the association and in the profession externally. And so what we're going to try to do is separate those things. And we're on the association side, it's going to be trying to make it more inviting. We want the membership to look like the profession. And so in other words, if whatever percentage of African-American, uh, Asian, whatever it be, pharmacists practicing, we want that same number not only to be members, but we also, you know, th this is my goal now, to have that reflect in leadership also. Because um, mm -hmm. just saying that you belong, but not serving in that leadership role, you know, Everybody should be welcome to come in and bring what, how they feel the, uh, the profession should be practiced, be able to bring it to the table and then not be looked at, you know, as well, where did that come from, negated or, or, or pushed out of the door? Because uh, that's the thing is, you know, some people we're going to have to give voice because they don't believe that their voice will be heard. You know, it's just like the, the appointment process, you know, for like the state board and for the uh, board of health. I mean, uh, the, the first black pharmacist appointed to the state board didn't go through the pharmaceutical association. It just happened that they were socially connected with the governor and they got appointed. And mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's changed now because, you know, I, I, I see people on the board that comes through the association, but you know, that wasn't always the case 
And so, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a whole lot of stuff up under the surface, you know, that when something goes wrong, it, you know, it, it, it pops up right away. And then, you know, the opportunities in uh, the external, you know, opportunities for leadership in corporations, because see, everything we're talking about, we're bringing from the outside world into first the profession and then into, you know, society. And because we bring that, you know, it is everything going the way it should on the jobs? Are the opportunities there? And, you know, even in education, you know, we need to make sure we have people in, in all of those things to, you know, to make sure. Well, I think it's, Im it's important to note, though, that, you know, we're talking about, you know, racism in general, but inclusion or, I guess, exclusion is also uh, a medium with which th this ingrained culture or even somebody who has openly embraced racism uses. It's one thing to, you know, even in modern times, it's still shocking to me, but when people openly uh, have racist views versus the the subtlety of racism in exclusion or flat out ignoring um, a, a population, even though they happen to be involved in the organization, doesn't mean that they're necessarily being heard appropriately. And I think that that was a good point that you made. Yeah, because see, we see too many times from behind our eyes. In other words, things have been told us all our lives and they stick in our brains. And instead of seeing what's really there, we, we get this image behind us. And a lot of times that excludes, that excludes, it discriminates, it does everything. Putt's mission is about exposing the devastating impact of PBMs on patients and independent pharmacies. In the last two years, there have been media stories covering the issue of pharmacy deserts and some poignant stories pointing to how pharmacy deserts hurt communities of color. What are your thoughts about PBMs and their effect on our patients? And I think that you had mentioned before I call it, you had a, a, a good story about this. Well, the, the thing is, they were very difficult for me to deal with, number one, because my practice was built on seniors and, you know, and cash paying patients and in a very large Medicaid population. And so when Medicare Part D came in and swiped all of my dual eligibles and all of, a lot of my seniors who were paying cash, you know, that was 2006. I mean, it was devastating. And what happened in many instances then, I was dealing with these HMOs that for the managed care Medicaid paid lower than anywhere else. And my group that I belong to, you know, whenever I said, well, when are you gonna get the payment up for these uh, managed care HMOs? They said, well, we got to accept them so we can get the rest. So that made it hard for any inner city pharmacy right there to, to do that. And, and I never will forget uh, when I was fortunate enough to be appointed to the board of a Medicaid managed HMO. You remember when you start getting paying faster and you got paying more, that's because I called out the PBM they were using uh, because they were telling the PBM they were paying the pharmacy one thing 
and they were paying something else, and I'm sitting there on the board, I can see it. But the worst thing that happened. Wow. I had a lot of I'd like to know more about that when you have a moment. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I service a lot of AIDS patients. Uh, and mm -hmm. you, know, you have to get prior authorization for most. And uh, I don't know whether the setup was in earlier because uh, I had gotten an email, I mean, a, a fax, where I could get all these drugs at half price. And my wife brought it out and showed it to me. She said, look at this. I said, put it in the trash can. I said, we're not going to jail around here. <laughs> but anyway, they had, an yes. they, had, they had an audit. And there were 100 drugs on the list. And 66 of them were AIDS drugs. And most of them were over $1,000. And most of them have been filled more than once. So you know what that was. And mm -hmm. so I just went bananas and got crazy. And, and the guy left. Well, circle uh, 2017, I was invited to come up here to Richmond and preach at a church. And I took the, the text about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And my sermon title was Black Men in the Fiery Furnace. And so after the sermon was over, I was talking to people. And when I came out, this lady was standing at the car talking to my wife. And then she walked away. And my wife said, isn't that amazing what she said? I said, she didn't say anything to me. She said, she <laughs> apologized. She said, she apologized for being a part of the PBM attempt to shut my pharmacy down. So in other words, that oil was an attempt. But it took, you know, it, it took it took the Holy Spirit and the preaching that God had put in me for her to, you know, to apologize for what she had done because she said she knew it was wrong, but it was her job. And you know I can't imagine. There's so many people I know that work for them who haven't who aren't drinking the Kool-Aid and have a conscious as to what's going on. I, I I often find myself uh, you know, wondering how these people live with themselves day to day, knowing what they're doing. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad she, I preached that Sunday morning at that church, and I'm glad she was there because, you know, it revealed to me how wicked this thing is. And, you know, it's, it's just got to be, be brought under control. I mean, how it's patients that I had served from the day I started in 1970 into the 2000s, where, you know, they say, well, you know, you have to come to our pharmacy or get the mail order. And these exclusive networks that, you know, want to pay you less than, than what, what the medication costs. I mean, I'm, I'm filling prescriptions for Bill Tola at, at Spring Up in, in Highland Springs and getting paid 70, for seven, 70 cents to fill a prescription and he's paying me, you know, to go and rape for a pharmacist. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's killing the, if, if you have patients that are on, you know, entities, so-called government subsidized program because they're just keeping the subsidy for themselves, you know, there's no way they can exist. No way they can exist. I mean, you know, it, it, it really hurts me when I, when I see it and that's why, I'm always looking for an independent pharmacy 
if I got to give me a prescription pill or if I just need something over the counter, because I mean, and that's what I would tell people all the time. I don't need a prescription. I said, well, you come in and, and buy some of these other things because I make more money off of that yeah. than I do the prescription, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, and, and, and to make the connection, a lot of independents exist in underserved communities because the chains don't want to go there. Um, and so the, the PVM problem, even on the national level, no matter where your pharmacy is at, it's going to affect the medically underserved communities the most, at first at least, because they, just like you said, they're not paying enough to to maintain these pharmacies. Even you know, and especially in Virginia, I can speak about Virginia because I've lived here my whole life. But you know, in rural parts of the state, you know, there's a lot of low-income you know towns and, and counties around that are medically underserved and they don't have a convenient pharmacy. They don't drive or they they don't have the way to have effective transportation. And these pharmacies are closing at high rates because even these rural contracts aren't worth it anymore. You know, there was a time where they made exceptions in the in the rural parts of the state where they'd give them a, maybe you know ten percent above what everybody else gets. And even those contracts, from what I hear, because I don't have a rural contract, even those aren't worth it any longer. A lot of our a lot of our our small towns and, and counties in Virginia have a huge African-American population. You talk about the Eastern Shore, it has a lot of Hispanic population as well. A lot of the, the Shenandoah Valley, Valley has a large minority segment that is not being serviced because we can't be reimbursed appropriately to, to keep the doors open. And the, and the thing about it, I mean, I, what I've never understood, pharmacy is such a value. Pharmacy, when, you know, done right, saves the healthcare system so many dollars. Uh, you know, the, sure. the rebates paid to the PBM don't help the situation because that's just adding to the cost. But why, you know, we mm -hmm. didn't treat it the way we do. And a lot of it falls on us as pharmacists because when the Medicare Part D thing started and after that first two weeks when those checks from Medicaid stopped coming in on Friday, and I started raising the red flag. I had my pharmacist that were working with me say, don't say anything. And I mean, I contacted the newspaper. Back then, Eric Cannell was in Congress and I knew Eric and I got with him. And, and, and that's how we got prompt payment, even though it took, you know, it took almost two years for that to help. And so many times, you know, when as when pe people come in, I know people always say they don't want to hear complain, but you know, when people come to the pharmacy, they would say, well, how you doing today, doc? Oh, everybody's doing fine and it's not fine. <laughs> and, and I think we have to start yeah. know that. Uh, you know, this thing with Adderall last year, I don't know whether it was still bad as it was last year, but you know, when you would lose $30 to fill prescription and and you know the chain started, so they they wouldn't even fill them, and was sending people to the independent. And like I was, I was telling them, I said, "Well, we don't stock it because we can't afford to fill the prescription. You know, it's just we we, we, mm -hmm. we can't fill it for you because that's you coming in here, and we giving somebody thirty dollars <laughs> to fill your prescription. 
Exactly. Yeah, well, we're giving it to we're giving it to the PBMs effectively because they're actually keeping that that money instead of paying us like they should. So, what advice do you have for our profession and for all of us in our personal lives to educate and or combat this ingrained social ignorance that we we live in this bubble that we touched on a little bit? What kind of advice do you have um, for us to, to do better in our personal lives and our profession? Well, the first thing, all of us, and I mean, I have to do this too, you've got to take a close look at yourself. And then, you know, you've got to start questioning, questioning education, you know, even questioning religion. There are a lot of books that are coming out, man, and I, you know, I, I, I share them a lot. One, one book, The Half That's Never Been Told, how slavery built the United States by Edward uh, Baptist. Uh, they're just tons of books. The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. It just talks about, you know, for years how lynching was an acceptable thing. Read, read, and then take a, take a trip. Go to that museum uh, in Washington, National Museum of Af African American History and Culture and just walk through and let it sink in. I mean, take, take the time to let it sink in. I, I read this book years ago called Medical Apartheid, and it talked about the guy that's the father of uh, obstetricians in the United States, and it talked about the instruments that he used on slave women to perform surgery. And when I got to the museum and they had some of those tools sitting in a case, chills ran through me. You know, we've we got to, it's not about rewriting history as some people have said, because you know, that was done post-reconstruction. History was rewritten. And that, that's why we got this argument about the monuments. I mean, what was in our school books was not the story. I've got a, 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 a painting in my bedroom from, uh, the collection, the color of money. All the southern states had currency. Or they had pictures of slaves being happy. So, you know, a different story has been told, and, and, and we've got to find out what that story is. And then you got to get, take the time to talk to Black people, but talk to Black people who will be honest with you. Because for so long, we have not been in a position of power. And so we will say, what we think we want you to hear, or as I had to deal with when we did a countywide Bible study on racism, most of black people said, well, all we got to do is love. Well, if that was the case, this thing would have been solved a long time ago. So it, it takes sure. a lot of things, but I think the main thing is taking a look at yourself. You know, and when I say self, that's yourself, that's your family, and then that spreads out to your faith community because some strange things have happened in faith community. Remember, the, the churches separated in 1845 before the states did, and a lot of those churches didn't even make uh, statements saying we were wrong until after 2000. And so, you know, that, that theology, that mindset has, has been taught for over 100 years and if it stopped, it's just stopped the last 10 years. But think of all the people where that's embedded in their minds, and they've taught it to their children. 
I think we also need to take a look at the at our own practices as well, and and our our institutions that train us, and and obviously our associations like we're doing at BPHA. It's not just black people, but it's poor people, because back in the seventies, one of the execs went around to the pharmacies, and and you know, and these were in, in white communities, just saw how the white Medicaid patients were being treated, you know, and so we we've got to look at all people, you know. I, I told you I teach Christian ethics and, you know, we got to look at this thing uh, that Augustine said years ago, if God made it, got to be some good in it and we got to be looking for the good in everybody. And I think if we did that, yes, they are evil people, but if we look for the good in them and bring that out, you know, things can get better. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Edlow. We really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. I hope our listeners um, take something away or even at the very least enjoyed the conversation uh, with somebody who's got so much history in our profession. Uh, that's been an enjoyable part for me as well. And I'm going to hand it back to Lauren. Thank you, Scott. And Dr. Edlow, as a daughter of a pharmacist myself, I can connect with a lot of things that you discussed today. And thank you so much for everything that you have done for not only the pharmacy industry, the independent pharmacy industry, but your passion for our fight against PBMs continues, and we greatly appreciate that at PUT. As Scott said, we really appreciate all of our listeners' comments. Anyone can feel free to leave us a note, tag us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at TruthRx or you can find us under Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency on Facebook. You can also email us at info at truthrx.org about this podcast. Please be safe and well, and we'll see you on the next episode of the podcast. Have a great day.